Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next interview at the Teacher Empowerment Summit. I am excited to introduce Dr. Becky Cohen-Vargas. She's an educator, a bullying prevention specialist, author, and speaker focused on inclusion, compassion, and belonging. For over 35 years, she worked in public schools as a teacher, principal, curriculum director, and superintendent. And in each of these settings, she focused on implementing effective teaching strategies for diverse student populations. Her book, Identity Safe Classrooms, Places to Belong and Learn, co-authored with Dorothy Steele, focuses on an equity-focused, evidence-based approach for elementary students from all backgrounds. She's currently working on another book along the similar strain, focused on identity safety for secondary classrooms, and I'm sure we'll hear a little bit about both of those. But with no further ado, uh, Dr. Becky Cohen-Vargas, welcome to the Teacher Empowerment Summit. Hi, I'm really happy to be here today. I'm speaking from California, from the San Francisco Bay Area where it's rainy one day and sunny the next. It's beautiful here in spring. Excellent. Looks like it's a sunny day out there today. Yeah. Perfect. Um, cool. Well, welcome. And yeah, we're getting a quite, quite a geographic spread of everybody as well uh, for all our speakers, which is really neat to see. Um, so that's kind of our first question is where are you coming from? And you've got that covered already. Uh, the second question, just to say hello to everyone, you're telling me just briefly about, but what's the, there's a, a group of schools or what's the most recent schools you've been working with in your consulting capacity? I'm actually working with a three high school, little charter district here in the Bay Area that works with urban students who um, are from <laughs> San Francisco. <laughs> right, right, when they start. I'm, let me just, <laughs> I'm currently working in uh, three schools, which are part of a charter district in the San Francisco Bay Area, Hayward, Richmond, and uh, Oakland. And we're actually working together on bringing identity safety into their school and on writing a book about it for, at the secondary level. Okay. Yeah, when I uh, first started reading about the identity safe classroom idea and kind of your research and, and your book, um, it really, my, my background, my first school was uh, actually a three high school charter system within the Denver area that focused on uh, especially refugee, immigrant, and underserved students, um, where, you know, the identity safe side, again, really, really uh, was needed and thankfully used pretty well. Although unfortunately, I did not have any of your research or book at the time. And once I looked through it, I was like, why, why didn't I have this? Um, but hearing that it was a three charter school system that you're working in right now is uh, very familiar to me. So I think, you know, based on everything that you do and the many years of work you've done it, we have an idea of what your most empowering idea is. But to get down to that idea of our summit, would you share what is the most empowering idea that you think every teacher, principal, educator out there who's watching this and around the world should have in their toolbox? What is that idea for you? Well, actually the identity safe concept, the idea of identity safety is not limited to an age group. It's the idea that a person feels that all aspects of their social identity, whether that is their gender, their race, their ethnicity, their religion, and many other aspects, our social identities are very complex. It's the kind of learner we are. It even includes things we like to do. Some people, part of their social identity is being a bicyclist that rides on long bike rides. The idea of identity safety is that we feel that in our whole, full selves, we are accepted, we're valued, and we can contribute. And so that is empowering for both teacher and student and anyone 
who's watching or listening because when we feel accepted, we can feel a sense of belonging and we feel like we can contribute. We don't have to leave any part of ourselves at the door. Okay. Now, I love that clarification. Um, and, and even kind of reading through it, I think Identity Safe Classroom, you get the idea of, okay, this is how we'll make students feel that their identity is safe. But in your description, I mean, even right off the bat, it's also uh, that description of feeling completely accepted so that you can contribute effectively. I know plenty of teachers that would love to have more of a sense of that feeling um, kind of in their school, unfortunately, as well. And uh, one of the comparisons we make at Teachers Starting Fires a lot is if you're a teacher, you're leading your classroom, just like if you're a principal, you're leading your staff. And it sounds like in both of these uh, kind of in every direction in these relationships, this identity safety would actually not just be for the students, but for everyone. Actually, you're making a good point. Our first book was focused on the elementary level and the base of it, basis of it was actual research done at Stanford on elementary students. So we really focused clearly on the student in that book. This next book is being that we're talking about secondary, we will have a chapter on teacher identity safety. And we'll also talk a lot more about how students develop their identities as they grow in adolescence. So we'll have an adolescent development chapter as well as like the first book, many strategies to create that sense of identity safety for students. But your point is well taken and the process of feeling safe includes how a teacher feels in a school because if a teacher feels like they they can't be their full selves in the school that also limits their capacity and the research that's the basis of all of this is the research on stereotype threat which was done by Claude Steele and many colleagues and Claude is the husband of my co-author um, Dorothy Steele and the idea of stereotype threat is that if you're worried about confirming a negative stereotype, even if you don't believe that stereotype, you are actually hampered in your performance. And they've shown that in study after study, whether it's women in mathematics, where women are stereotyped as not being actually as good in math as men, they perform at a lower level. It's been done at the college level among math, experts and it's been done in middle schools and the re the same as the research on students of color black and latino students immigrant students who may be stereotyped in our greater society and more recently even more than before as of lower into having lower intelligence or less competent and capable and even though someone might be very intelligent and know that they're intelligent, their fear that someone might think they aren't actually limits performance. And they, like I said, there are many research studies on this concept of stereotype threat. So identity safety is what is looked at as an antidote. If you feel confident and safe in yourself, accepted and able to function with your whole self, you're less likely to be impacted by stereotype threat. Okay. A stereotype threat, the fear that, uh, I guess the, the performance reducing fear that if you screw up, it will, you'll become part of the negative stereotype that might affect you. Uh, and so that actually kind of like makes a loop where you, you underperform because you're afraid of failing or, or meeting a negative stereotype. 
it's some kind of social psychological factor. And I'll give a really good example people can relate to driving. <laughs> My husband, when I drive and he's sitting next to me, has said comments that have made me feel like I'm a less competent driver than I actually am. And then I start making mistakes. And I know he doesn't mean it, but I drove and commuted for 12 years, to a, lot of, a long distance, 50 miles each way, with no tickets and no problems. And then suddenly now I'm driving and I'm making, I'm more nervous and I'm making mistakes. So not um, to ding him because he's a good driver, I'm a good driver, but just that dynamic is an example that I think people can relate to. It's also research has been done on senior citizens and memory. When somehow that's triggered that your memory is worse as a senior citizen, all of a sudden you start forgetting more. And um, so this phenomenon has been so well documented, it's become an international field of study. But then what do you do about it? Because stereotypes are out there, whether they're actually repeated over and over or not. So it's, it's an underlying fear that, that causes this. So we have to kind of inoculate against it. Okay. And then I guess to have you answer your own question that you've put forward, what do you do about this? I mean, obviously having the idea of stereotype threat, being aware of it, very important, but this inoculating against it, what are some of the details or the steps for that? How do you um, build this identity safe classroom? Well, the actual research came up with a series of about 14 different categories that that help do that. So now I'm targeting the classroom as opposed to the teacher. But for the student, a student-centered classroom where teachers are really focused on the needs of this, each student and looking to create an environment where there's equal status, where the they teach for understanding, make sure the students understand what they're learning and aren't just regurgitating facts. That's one of the one of the areas. Um, autonomy, giving a chance to think for themselves and do things for themselves is another one. Cooperation, learning to work together and feeling valued as part of a team is another one. Then the area of relationships is very important to attend to the teacher-student relationship and the student-student relationship. And that in the area of bullying, which I've done a lot of work and, and presenting, when a student is bullied and doesn't feel safe out on the schoolyard, the, if the teacher doesn't address it or the school doesn't address it because it happened outside the classroom, that dynamic impacts students greatly in their sense of safety and identity safety because a lot of bullying happens because students are different in some way. So those areas are really important. And then treating diversity as a resource as opposed to a barrier or something someone has to overcome. You were talking about working with immigrant and refugee students. And if, for example, an educator focuses on the richness of having students from different backgrounds and the um, draws from their cultures in ways that don't stigmatize them or treat them as exotic other, but rather help them share aspects of their background in the context of a safe environment, students feel better about who they are. 
same along with the area of gender. If a student spends 12 years in school and they have um, either a transgender identity or a gay identity, and that never gets mentioned and valued, students feel less safe. And that's exactly why Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the military didn't work, because it isn't enough to not um, be targeted if you have to hide a part of yourself. So these are all aspects of the identity safe classroom, along with pro teaching pro-social skills and social emotional learning and helping students through having high, high um, expectations for them. And we've also found that work on the growth mindset has really helped because it's a belief that your identity and your intelligence is not determined at birth, but it grows as you put in effort and you learn along the way. So that's a really quick overview of the different aspects of creating the identity safe classroom. And, okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, and uh, just the, yeah, there are a lot of pieces there. Um, what I, I love, uh, and again, kind of a, a little of the background on teachers starting fires, basically Austin and I saw that a lot of what, you know, was sort of standard practice at summer camps actually also helped in the classroom. And then as I'm working on this project and, and working with other educators, uh, I, you know, and, and getting my own teaching license, would see places where kind of the research really backed up these things that we're going on at summer camps or going on at this adventure center kind of out of habit without necessarily understanding the research behind it. Um, and I, I kind of just, it's nice to see, uh, especially that, that idea of like autonomy, um, teaching for understanding some of those that like have to be done in that outdoor adventure world that then work really well in a classroom. And then to hear that it also can even help create kind of that individual identity as well and build up some safety there. Um, summer, I, summer camps are wonderful places. I know for me, it yeah. was important part of my life and I went to Jewish camps and that was a place where I felt um, I could be more accepted so it it's kind of like it did build my identity and a lot of times in camps you're helping kids figure out who they are and it's very meaningful and I, I think we can learn a lot in regular classrooms for that from that Absolutely. Um, if a few questions or thoughts that came up throughout um, I guess the one that really stood out is, as you said, it's not just having a lot of different cultures, but it's mentioning and valuing them. And I thought that was a really interesting idea I'd love to hear a little more on. Um, I thought of a school where, uh, you know, and I've worked at a, a few schools with large kind of very uh, geographically diverse sources of, of refugees and immigrants coming in. And at some schools, you know, it was all academics. And so well, there wasn't anything negative. Also, I, I didn't learn very much about the students. Uh, and, and honestly, like their, their cultures and backgrounds were almost never mentioned. And sometimes I almost felt awkward asking, even though they had very different clothing and cultures and obviously were speaking different languages um, from each other. It was kind of strange even to bring it up. At another school I was at, they did a talent show where everybody got to really represent their own country. They had about 57 flags, I think it was, from different countries up and, and were really embracing it. And obviously there was a very different feeling there um, at that school. That idea of mentioning and valuing, I was wondering if you could just go a little more into what that would look like in a classroom, as well as what that looks like for, for teachers or for a principal trying to lead teachers that might you know, be different people as all of us are. 
Well, I think that your example of this talent show where everyone shared was really good because one thing you don't want to do is target a student in a way like you're trying to validate their culture, but you've made them feel like they're some unique, different thing. You want to create this diversity as a resource in a context where everybody has diversity and everybody has something to contribute. And that reminded me of an assembly we once did when I was principal of a school in Oakland and we did this dance assembly. We, it was like a dance where we taught each other dances. So it was um, really fun because the different, that, that particular school had Cambodian students, had Vietnamese, had Latina students, black students, white students, Bosnian students, um, who were actually white students. Um, and so they all were just teaching dances and we ended up with everything from that particular time, La Macarena, to a Cambodian dance, and it was just a sharing opportunity. And that's what you're trying to do in the diversity as a resource. And it's not only ethnic and religious or whatever, it's any kind of diversity. And it becomes part of the air they breathe that they're used to sharing that. And it's not looked at, oh, here's some unique different thing, or we only do it once a year on the multicultural night, but it's all throughout the curriculum. And for example, I did an activity where I had my fifth graders when I was teaching, how do we celebrate the winter holidays? And we actually, each student wrote a little essay and then I got it into the newspaper, um, in our local newspaper. So it's just making it a natural part of what you do, along with a real awareness of subtle bias and microaggressions, which are under the surface little kind of attacks and barbs back and forth about these things. It's also an educator becoming aware of implicit bias, which um, is something that we all have, but we all need to work on not perpetrating <laughs> or continuing. And so it's, it's just a really, you know, you probably felt different in that environment where you described the differences between those two schools. And you, there's just a welcoming, warm feeling in a place where people can really be their, their full selves. And educators also need that, that capacity to feel that way. And I remember an example of the opposite where there was a lesbian teacher who had put up a photo of her, a wedding photo up on the school bulletin board and the principal asked her to take it down. It was even in just in the staff room and because he, he felt uncomfortable and yet there were all these photos of everyone else with their children and their families and what have you. So it's, that how is that teacher going to be fully present and happy with the students if she has to hide this part of herself and so as opposed to the opposite where at another school it was an elementary school the teacher got married and she told her students and um but she had talked with her principal before who promised to back her up and so when somebody came and complained the, t the principal just said, in our school, we accept everybody, and that was just a blanket sense that that teacher could feel safe in, in that space with her students. So it's, it's a consciousness that is like concentric circles through a system that we are going to make this place safe for everybody. Okay. The 
some of the ideas definitely um, have the feeling of, you know, as a teacher, we can help make sure that students feel safe, uh, identity safe, kind of have that welcomeness and, and being valued. As a principal, we can make sure that the teachers feel that way. Um, I guess I'm kind of thinking leading up, I mean, this is not going to students necessarily, it's aimed at, at teachers and principals, but in all those cases, um, you know, for that example, the, the lesbian teacher who was asked uh, kind of horrifyingly to take down a photo of her wedding versus all of the other weddings and families, um, for her or for any other teacher who even, you know, less extreme examples, but might feel so, you know, to some extent, some part of their identity is not accepted, and then they can't be there fully with their students. Are there ways to kind of build up the sense of identity safety for yourself um, without necessarily being able to change the people above you or, or change your coworkers? Uh, since, I mean, obviously a full culture of acceptance is much better, but what would you recommend as people? Because um, I just, I keep thinking of your description at the beginning of the interview where you said you feel valued and like able to fully contribute. And that's obviously the place that we want every teacher to be able to get and every principal to be. So what would you recommend for each individual to kind of build their own identity safe sense of identity safety? Well, actually, one of the things we recommend for students and would apply for teachers is to become aware of counter narratives. And I don't know if that term is now being used across educational systems, but the idea of a counter narrative is there's kind of a mainstream narrative about who can be successful, what do you have to do, and it's very much a, an assimilation model. Like, if you play the game right, we'll accept you. And the playing the game right is adopting a set of values and experiences and a way of talking that is very much a white mainstream way. And so by reading counter narratives of history of, and of examples, you boost up your own sense that, no, this, there's nothing wrong with me. It's our society and we have to change it. And, and I think that was a personal experience that I went through because both my parents were German Jews and had to escape Hitler. And as I, I grew up shortly after the war, the Second World War, and so the, the feelings were still out there. And so what do you do? Some of it is you build up your own identity. That's probably like going to a Jewish camp, which, which helped me at a time when I was in middle school and in a place where I was one of the few Jewish kids there. So you create environments where you are not just isolated, even if it's apart from your work environment. And you realize the counter narratives that no, it isn't something that's wrong with me that my group is um, experiencing discrimination. It is something wrong with a larger system. And in the case of Hitler, that larger system, you know, my mother went through the experience of first being um, taken out of the class when they had these assemblies about white Aryan, about Aryans and not, you know, that Jews weren't accepted, so they'd take her to the office. Then eventually she was actually kicked out of the school. She had to go to a, a Jewish school. And then finally on Kristallnacht, when they were throwing rocks at her house, her family said, we have to leave. And in my father's case, there was nowhere to go except to be a refugee in a ghetto in Shanghai, China, because the doors of the world were closed. So we experienced in our family an extreme sense of discrimination. And the counter it, we build up that um, 
counter narratives that, that say, no, this is wrong, this isn't right, as well as a black student in the US would build, learn the counter narratives about the way blacks have been treated in the US over the years. And, you know, discrimination and prejudice is universal, but so is the fight against it. So part of the counter narrative is learning that people have been working to end that discrimination and, um, and to create acceptance and identity safety. It's, it's actually part of human history throughout time. And, and that helps build that strength. And then once you realize and get the confidence out of it, you can create it for your students and work to change your school. Okay. Wow. That's, um, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I began as a history teacher. I'm familiar with the timeline, but it, it's just uh, true. It, it's still, still feels more distant than it really is the the time frame of learning about the Holocaust and everything else. And thinking that, you know, really only one, two generations ago, there were students in classrooms basically, you know, being immediately met and pulled out of the classroom for these rallies and all of that. And it's uh, that, yeah, it's shocking and a lot to, to kind of process through for that, but a really powerful story. Um, I can also see probably how that eventually tied into some of your own work. And um, I, I mean, one piece I'm seeing there, even from you with your life as an example, is gathering information and research kind of as a counter to stereotypes as well, which I, it, it seems like part of the, the counter narrative. Absolutely. And I, I definitely feel that this experience of my parents really influenced me. And then realizing that it may not be going on in the extreme that we talked about with my parents, but immigrant children being separated from their families and living um, where they don't even know where their parents are, things are going on today that are unacceptable, that have to change. And working um, to bring those changes into our schools, I think, is important, whether it's from the point of view of a person who's been discriminated against or the people who haven't been becoming allies, which is one more thing I, I forgot to mention. For a teacher in a school who doesn't maybe feel fully accepted, but there are allies in the school and finding those allies, I think, can strengthen the person as well. And you can be an ally to people in your school who maybe are not feeling totally accepted and you can also find allies in the school if you feel like there, it is an identity safe and begin to shift the culture. Culture can shift from a bottom up or top down. It's not only dependent on your principal or the school district. Okay. Now I had two kind of specific questions that have come up that I, I would love to, to go over with you since we've got, I've got an expert in this field uh, with me right now and they've kind of, I realize have been going through my mind kind of from my first year's teaching and, and through the whole process. The first one to kind of use your example again as um, the, the driving example, right? Is that that wasn't necessarily tied to a specific identity, maybe a little bit the stereotype of, you know, women can't drive, which is obviously not true. We know women actually tend to have like great hand-eye coordination as well, as well as being able to uh, multi-process or multitask better than men can in terms of research. But that the, the point is that that's not necessarily tied to a larger group stereotype, 
so much as an individual identity. And that's kind of the nature of this question is, does the same, um, maybe not stereotype threat, but the same type of idea apply to just uh, uniquely like individual traits. So I'm thinking of a student who not because of any group identity, but just individually maybe has been told, uh, hey, you're stupid. And so then they have this internal fear of making that seem true to other people, even though it's not tied to a group identity. And if, uh, if some of this research ties to just, I guess, uh, completely individual traits as opposed to group identity. That's a, a good question. And I'm not sure about the answer to that. I, I'll have to investigate. I do, I do believe, though, that it may not be stereotype there because that's not a stereotype. It's, but it is an example of um, what could be called learned helplessness, where you, a person, they've done research, the researcher's name is Martin Seligman, Seligman, and the research is if you get treated um, and come to feel that you can't do something and it's over and over again, you basically start giving up before you try. So it's a little different angle on the stereotype or on the, but it's also a really negative thing. If you've been told, and they've actually, in the time, some of the research was done before the um, careful research about animals was not being harmed um, was done. So they actually did this research with animals where a dog would be given a shock over and over and over again. And then when the um, shocks, the door to the cage was opened and you wouldn't get the shock anymore, the dogs didn't leave. And that's kind of a horrible example, but it's, it's the idea, and learn helplessness is a proven concept that if you're feeling like you can't and you're being told over and over that you're stupid um, and you've internalized it, you don't even try. And I have seen that happen with students and it also happens to students who get failing grades over and over and they don't try okay and, and uh, so I, these ad, these solutions for for identity safety can also build up confidence in a student who's experienced that okay and i'm kind of seeing i imagine not the you're stupid but certain negative traits of the teaching profession as well um, as much as we would like to think it doesn't, can become learned helplessness as well. Um, what comes to mind for me is I've definitely met teachers or, or seen especially social media comments where a teacher seems to just say like, yeah, well, being miserable is part of the job, um, which it absolutely should not be. And that's part of what the, the whole summit is about. But it sounds like similar idea that kind of if you don't have any other narratives, if you don't have any other stories to go with as a teacher, that that's something you just start to believe. Absolutely, and I think that part of what identity safety does for the teacher and the student is it's it's actually brings a lot of joy into your teaching. And the um, part of the research on because um, I, I didn't give this the end of the research. I told you what they found worked. Yeah. But basically, students with higher identity safety did better in school, and they liked more. They liked school better and they thought their teachers, they liked their teachers better. So all of that is the upward spiral, right? It all, one thing makes the other um, more of a success experience and teaching is more enjoyable 
and full of warmth and love as opposed to the idea that I'm miserable as a teacher, which okay. I hope people don't feel. And then um, my other question, and this one, again, might be like a little complicated, but it's what uh, I, I ran into as a new teacher was the realization um, kind of along those microaggression ideas is that uh, I felt fairly aware that I wasn't um, using microaggression in terms of students speaking other languages or being different skin colors. But I realized one area that I was accidentally kind of turning students away from me was that some students in our school had family members that were criminals in one way or another. Um, you know, plenty of them had been to jail, plenty of them had committed crimes, whether theft or violence or something. Um, but just in our culture and in the way that schools work typically, over and over we kind of give this message that criminals are bad people, whereas obviously like the actions they did are negative, but what these students were essentially hearing over and over was that we thought their family members were bad people, right? which like maybe from a larger societal viewpoint, you could argue that like, yes, a, a criminal or somebody who's committed a violent crime is bad. But I guess my question here is, how do you create identity safety for a student who might have part of their own identity be a negative activity, right? So a student who identifies as a graffiti artist, which we would say is you know socially destructive, or a student that identifies as a drug dealer, um, you know, I had students that did that, whether they were actually dealers or not, but they kind of glorified that idea. Um, so how do we maybe, I don't know, reject the the behavior without giving the sense we're rejecting the student? Do you have any advice on that? Well, actually, I think you gave your own advice because it is the idea of separating a little bit the behavior from the person's values. So even take it to a much lesser extreme, like let's say a student bullies someone else. Um, first of all, we, we always say don't lay or in your example as a drug dealer or somebody whose parents are in that, uh, it paused for just a second on my end. Um, I heard That's don't, me. were you saying don't label or? Yeah, let me read. Okay. I don't want to scratch my nose, which is itching since you're going to edit here. Yeah, since we got to cut out a section. Yeah, the, uh, it showed a weak internet connection for just a yeah, second. Yeah, I saw it for a second. Okay. okay. When, one of the things that we aim to do is not labeling students in the negative um, identities. So not call, labeling a student as a bully is a way to separate out the bullying behavior from your identity as a student. So we recognize that we make mistakes, we aim not to hurt people. And so in the cases you described, um, and especially in the case of the student whose parents are incarcerated, which actually isn't the student's behavior, but just judging their family, right? So we aim not to provide these judgments or labels and try and focus on the kind of values and the culture we're trying to create. That we're trying to create a culture where we value each other, where we're kind to each other. And it, having positive values doesn't mean that we validate students for negative things they do, but at the same time that we don't label them and say that that's unchangeable. And we look at mistakes as learning opportunities and what did you learn from this? And so the idea of a student as a drug dealer is a little more complicated 
but it would be sitting down with the student and looking at what are the benefits that they're gain, gaining from this behavior and what are the risks and what, where do they want their life, their life to go. And so helping them find a sense of purpose in life that may be different than what they're doing, but not judging them for it because maybe that's a logical thing to do in the context of what they see in their neighborhoods, but helping them kind of come up with more an aspiration and a sense of purpose in life that could be more positive. I don't know if that um, hits. No, that, yeah, that, that definitely, it helps. I'm, I am enjoying uh, hearing all these ideas. I'm really glad to talk to you. I know throughout a lot of these interviews, especially this one, I've been thinking, like, I sure wish I had this information and these videos and all these resources when I was a, a beginning teacher as well and kind of maybe as part of my grad school or whatever had had access to this. So uh, it just, it does make me excited to be able to share this with a lot of educators. I'm really appreciate the the info from you as well and kind of having having an expert to reflect on some of these thoughts with. Um, one other part you mentioned as we kind of get towards the end here, you do have SEL, I believe social emotional education or social emotional learning in there. Um, as part of the identity safety, as part of your ideas, if you would just, like what, what did you want to share about the, the SEL as part of this? I use the term SEL in the research they came up with, um, they called it attention to pro-social development. And so the idea that they um, developed is broader than social emotional learning, which may be the idea of teaching social skills and incorporating social skill development as part of the learning. It's actually noticing a little more about where your students come in and helping them build pro-social, which is kind of what my example was in terms of the drug dealing. It's not so much judging and being harsh about it, but more helping students think about pro-social positive values as part of learning that. How do you do it? There are a couple ways. One is modeling and metacognitively explaining it as you model it. So you might say, I'm doing, um, let's see, let me think of an example. I'm trying to help uh, the class look at ways to be more cooperative and work together with each other. So this is what I'm doing to do that. So we're going to change our activity. I know a teacher who did this, who at first had a lot of debates as part of his, um, activity at the end of a, a particular historical lesson and found that the kids were getting competitive and kind of being mean to each other. So I said, I'm going to change it up. I'm going to teach you about interest-based bargaining, which is a model of settling negotiations and unions where we look at our interests. So he taught him about the interests and about, and you come to a joint agreement. And so he found that shifted them, but he explained why he was doing this. So he was um, metacognitive. He was talking about how. Another way to do it is to share our own vulnerabilities, which builds trust. So we talk about, like you're saying, I wish I knew this at the beginning. I actually did my master's degree on self-esteem, and then the self-esteem movement, which at the time we were doing a lot of things that really didn't work. <laughs> and we were kind of boosting self-esteem by getting kids to chant things like, I'm special, I'm a good person, and that didn't really turn out in the research to make a difference. So we're all learning along the way and sharing what we've learned and how we're changing 
helps our students. Um, another way is direct teaching, role-playing, and practicing, which we use um, a lot in the bullying prevention work. We teach students how to be upstanders who speak up and stand up in the case of bullying, either when they're bullied or when someone else is bullied. And we actually do role plays with them to practice so that when it happens, they, they know how to do it. And so all there are many, many different ways to do it. But the main thing is that it's not like a separate curriculum that you have to add on. It's part of your learning. So you could do a cooperative learning activity where the students are actually working on a particular content area and they're working together as a team on a project. But then when you reflect back with them at the end, you ask them, how did we work together? How, how did your team work together? What did you learn? What could you improve? And then you also talk about the content. What did you learn? How did you come to that? What could you do better in the future? So you're both learning the, the social emotional skills and the academic skills at the same time. Okay. And blending that in. And I, yeah, I mean, I can see how most of, or a lot of the identity safety can build up from having an understanding of your own thought process and being able to model and explain that. I like the description of modeling with metacognitive explanation um, as opposed, to, because I, I think just modeling, many students might not really pick up everything a teacher is doing. Uh, as well as as a teacher, we might not always be as aware of what we're doing unless we explain it a little bit and make sure we actually are modeling what we're trying to. Right, so it's kind of like walking, what do they say? walk the talk so it's it's being sure that what you're doing is in sync with what you're trying to teach as well as helping the students understand a little better okay that version it's like walking the talk while also talking about the walk yeah that's yeah. that's a good one now you can be quoted on that that's great perfect okay well uh, i'll put put together a little uh little internet meme and share that quote out there <laughs> yeah. um excellent all right so uh Obviously, much more than a 40-minute interview or so can cover since it's been a huge amount of research by many, many people. Um, but if teachers are seeing this and they're excited to start trying to apply more, to learn a little bit more about how to make an identity-safe classroom for themselves uh, or a principal make an identity-safe classroom for their school, I know you do have a couple websites and a book as well. If people want to find out more, and we will include the links down below as we do on all speakers, but can you give a little description of your book, your website? There it is. <laughs> You've got it ready. Excellent. It, it was time. All right. So the book is called Identity Safe Classrooms, Places to Belong and Learn, and you can see there are young children on the cover. And it basically goes through the research. It goes through what teachers can do. And, and the research was called the Stanford Integrated Schools Project, and that was done by Dorothy and Claude Steele and some other colleagues. I used that research and did a teacher um, study group for my dissertation. So we, they came up with the ideas, and then I wanted to describe more deeply all the categories. And so the book is a combination of what they came up with the research, my study group, and then Dorothy Steele also had a study group. Then um, the website has sort of the philosophical components of identity safety, also has links to some articles that also describe it not as comprehensive as the book. And then the next book will be out in 2020, which is a high school focused book, but it will have things, just like the elementary book was valuable to kids, to teachers of secondary schools, even though they had to kind of apply it, 
the secondary book will have some things the elementary book didn't have that will also be useful for teachers at all grade levels. So um, I also give workshops and presentations. I do on, I like to do ongoing work with schools, so I've done more work in the Bay Area, but I also have flown to different places and done um, sessions on identity safety, and then they follow up with study groups. So um, that's where they can find out more. All right, um, and that is, we'll have a couple links below, but I believe the consulting and speaking is at the BeckyCohenVargas.com? Yeah. That's my personal website that has a, few, a little more about my bullying prevention. And then the identitysafeclassrooms.org has depth on identity safety. Perfect. And okay. Um, and since you're here and I've been reading about it and there's a little video, there is a, it looks like a nature reserve that you are also in charge of. And I just think that's a really exciting uh, piece. It is on there. We might even include that link, but you can find it on the BeckyCohenVargas.com as well. Uh, I'm not even quite sure how to pronounce that, but would you? Oh, my Kenge. <laughs> my husband it? and I bought a little piece of rainforest property in Nicaragua, which is where he's from and where we met. And we bring student groups there. And unfortunately, it's in a little bit of a hiatus because there's some political um, un unrest in Nicaragua. The reserve is fine. The animals, the monkeys, and everybody are living just fine there. But we haven't been bringing students this year. But we've brought over 70 students and we bring college students, both um, freshmen and then we brought um, juniors and seniors, biology students. And it's to learn about the environment and nature. And we also have a whole website where we've gathered a lot of information on the biodiversity there. So Excellent. human diversity yeah. and biodiversity, that's yeah, all. Perfect. I <laughs> I like it. classroom and biodiversity. Um, yeah, just as I was, you know, I've been looking at a lot of different uh, websites and, and kind of looking at all the many speakers that we have on the summit. And I will tell you that is the only rainforest nature reserve that any speaker has had. Uh, so I thought we'd just share that a little bit because it's pretty neat to see on there as well. Well, it's really wonderful. And um, I actually just was thinking I got to have a relationship with a monkey that we, re we rescued that lasted two years and then the monkey went back into the wilds and I'm hoping she's had babies by now, but it um, got me to appreciate the how amazing um, nature is when you get to look up and get to know certain animals because there there's an alligator that's been living in the river by the house for the last five years that we've also gotten to, to know we name, name them. So, um, Anyway, well, thank you so much for having me. And I really um, think what you're doing is great because an empowered teacher is a really important thing. And I think it's been a wonderful ride for me being an educator all these years. And I hope that teachers come to feel identity safety. They've also been attacked and stereotyped. We have as educators in negative ways and we need to have the counter narratives on that and realize how important it is to be a teacher and to be an educator. Absolutely. For the future of our planet. All right. Now, uh, if you are at home or in a coffee shop, or as we say, a tree house watching this somewhere, uh, basically anywhere with internet, as you know, the summit is just going to be these three days that we've got right here at the beginning of May. If you like this interview or any of the other interviews and you think, wow, I'd really like to be able to see these more than the one time, I'd like to see these all year long, I'd like to be able to come back to these resources, 
get all of these links, find all of our speakers, be able to connect with everybody uh, on that Facebook group as well. If you want this summit to last for the entire year, the neat part of a virtual summit is that we can actually host all of this all year long, but for lifetime access, it is that VIP all access pass. Right now during the summit, it is only $97. It will jump up to, I believe, 147 right after the summit for those two days, and then there's just no more access. So if you love these, um, I know speaking to the interviewees and, uh, and being able to go through and edit the videos and see all of these, I love seeing these ideas over and over. Every time I watch one of these videos, I have new pieces pop out. If you want that experience, if you want to be able to reference these, uh, lifetime access with that is the VIP All Access Pass. There are buttons all over this page, of course, to go get one of those before it gets more expensive, before it's gone forever. So please go get a VIP All Access Pass. Be able to see speakers like Dr. Becky Cohen-Vargas uh, all year long instead of only for the three-day event. And with that, Dr. Becky Cohen-Vargas, do you have any last thoughts that you want to share with our educators before we say goodbye? Well, I think it's wonderful, and I think what you're doing and the idea of identity safety is very uh, well synchronized, and I hope that educators are getting this and taking it to whole schools, because whole school dialogue on these topics is what can really bring about change. But you don't have to have the whole school. You can do it in your classroom, and you'll feel more fulfilled you feel better as a teacher and your students will do better as well. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. All right, until next video, goodbye everyone and we'll see you around.